We are continuing through our series on marriage, Marriage Matters. And today we're looking at gender roles in marriage. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Begin reading verse 26 through verse 27. We'll also read chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. Hear God's word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let, him, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the joy and privilege we have to worship and exalt your name in song and through the spoken word. And now as we come to your word, we know and affirm in our hearts that this is you speaking to us in a timeless way. And it is only limited by our own ability to understand. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our, our hearts, our ears, our minds. May we see clearly what you truly teach in your word. And may our hearts be transformed and changed by it. For we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Have you ever tried on a pair of shoes that didn't fit and tried to wear them for any given period of time? Um, I have a pair of shoes that were too small, perhaps, sometimes too large, but more often than not, a pair that's too small. And for the first few minutes, they seem bearable. Maybe a little discomfort, but it's bearable. But the longer you keep the shoe on, the sore your foot becomes, the less capable you are of walking or running. You leave the shoe on long enough, and either your toes will develop a natural curl, or the leather on the shoe will break at the seam, or both. And unfortunately, I've had at least one of those happen. So when we think of a pair of shoes and finding the right size, it seems to be evident that it's important that we find a shoe that fits. Well, in a similar way, and I say this with clarification, because in a similar way, the Bible does truly say that there are differences in roles, differences in gender, and I think sometimes that we like to pretend as if there are not. Now, I say all this, let me just allay your fears and say that I understand. I wrestled this entire week as I was in preparation for the sermon. I wrestled with the fact that we live in a culture, we live in a world, and I'm part of it, I'm influenced by it daily, where it's uncomfortable for us to think of differences in gender roles that are defined by the Bible. In fact, if you, any of us living in here, uh, are, 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 uh, have lived on God's earth long enough, have lived in this society long enough to know that one of the hotly debated topics today is gender. In fact, the term gender dysphoria is considered a real legitimate issue. And so whenever we talk about gender differences as being established by God, determined by God, a shoe that fits perfectly, so to speak, we will automatically seem antiquated and old-fashioned to many. 
But let me assure you that I'm not going to get too far in the weeds this morning. I will hopefully talk about application that ruffles a bit of our feathers. Otherwise, I don't think we've done a good job fleshing out biblical truth. Um, but I'm going to keep it at about 30,000 feet, okay? I'm not going to talk about who does the dishes in your house. I'm not going to talk about who takes out the trash or, um, you know, who, who's the major breadwinner. So let me assure you, allay your fears a bit in that regard. But I, we will look together at the Bible to determine what are those qualifications, what are those characteristics that are intrinsic to who we are as men and women, gender specificities, that if they are not understood, wreak havoc in our culture, wreak havoc in our lives, and wreak havoc in our churches. It's very important that we understand the role, that what the Bible has to say about the role of men and the role of women, particularly as it relates to marriage. So we're going to explore three things. One, we're going to ask the question, do roles matter? In other words, so what? We're going to try to find a biblical answer to that question. And two, uh, what is man's role? And then three, what is woman's role? So let's first begin by asking the question and seeing the answer here from our text, do roles matter? The text we just read reveals several things about the creation of man and God's intention for gender differences. But when we come to the critical question, so what? When we come to the question, do roles matter, we have to bear in mind that we live in an age where the feminist agenda has overcorrected previously held views concerning the relationship between men and women, which were as equally wrong as are the views expressed by feminism. We live in this society, we, we swim in this stream where daily we are confronted by mixed messages, the messages of both the LGBTQ plus culture as well as the feminist culture. We are confronted with a view of masculinity which is essentially non-existent. And I say that because if you look at even many of the uh, children programs, children's programming, cartoons, shows, whatnot, um, most of the time the man, the boy, is painted to be foolish or inept, and the girl is painted to be the heroine or the one who's smart. And so um, we have somewhat overcorrected in our society something which is equally as unbiblical as the chauvinistic patriarchal view of man and his relationship with woman uh, was in the past. So, in an attempt to avoid being misunderstood, let me simply state this, that there are what I believe and what I believe the Bible teaches to be two sides to this road that we're walking on, two ditches, if you will. One ditch is the ditch of egalitarianism, which to some extent has been the, the child of the feminist movement, the belief that there are no differences, no divinely created differences between men and women. And the other side of the ditch is what unfortunately continues to be perpetrated even among some sincere Bible-believing Christians, which is what I'll call the patriarchal view of the gender relationship. This view sees women as subservient and inferior to men, biblically speaking. And I think that uh, people are hard-pressed to find that understanding in the Bible. 
Instead, there's a term which I'll just mention once because the term itself is not important. We'll talk about what it means throughout the sermon today. But there's a term that we, many of us, believe the Bible uh, is accurate, is an accurate definition of what the Bible says about the relationship between men and women, and that is the term complementarianism. Basically, it's a long word that means that men and women, even though they are different, therefore not egalitarian, are designed to complement each other. And this is what we see in our biblical passage. And so we'll spend some time looking at that this morning. But as it pertains to the question, so what? Do roles matter? We need to realize that a biblical understanding or lack thereof of the gender roles in marriage, as well as the gender roles in society, can lead to a variety of deficiencies within our church, within our culture. Namely, that if we do not understand the role, the biblical role of a man and a woman, that marriage patterns will not betray or they will not portray rather the relationship between Christ and the church, which is mentioned in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. Two, that parenting practices uh, will not train boys to be masculine or girls to be feminine. Three, that same-sex tendencies and increased attempts to justify same-sex lifestyles as natural will increasingly become common, and we see this throughout our culture. Four, that roles of individuals within the family, church, and society that confuse the meaning of manhood and womanhood, thus detracting from the clear, visible portrayal of the image of God in both genders will become normalized. And so it's important for us to ask the question, do roles matter? And here the Bible issue a resounding yes. There are gender differences. And I think if that makes you uncomfortable as it does me, that's a good thing. Because it shows you how the Bible often will be countercultural, how it will rub up against things that we would rather not talk about, things that we would rather not address, things perhaps that we allow subconsciously the culture, the society around us to define, when in all reality the Bible gives us a definition that maybe is a bit, even among some Christians, considered to be a bit antiquated. So, now that we've established that it does indeed matter, that it is important what the differences of these two roles are, let us examine what is different. So gender roles matter in community and in marriage ultimately because of this. Men and women reflect the image of God in creation most when they fulfill their mutually assigned roles. Now, the two verses that I just read in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, uh, they stake at least three things rather emphatically. One, that man was made in the image of the triune God. We believe that God is a trinity, meaning that he, there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'll not take time to um, define that now, but ultimately we do believe in a triune God. But when God, this triune God, made man in his own image, he made them male and female and called them both man. Secondly, that male and female were both given dominion over creation. And by the way, to dominate creation does not mean that you control it, exploit it, consume it. It means that you nurture it that you shepherd it, that you care for it. But again, that's a sermon for another day. Uh, the third 
characteristic that we see in these two verses I just read is that men and women have a unique role to play in fulfilling this divinely ordained mission. And the only time in the entire Bible when God said something prior to the fall, when God said something was not good, uh, is mentioned in chapter 2 and um, the verses which we will now read. Chapter 2, verse 18 through 24, we see the Bible says this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So we note a few things. First, that when God saw the condition of man ultimately prior to the fall and said it's not good, there's one thing that he said was not good, and ultimately that is the absence of gender. If you think about uh, the context of our uh, of verse 18, when the Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone, ultimately um, he provided a helper or helpmeet for him. And sometimes in our culture, in our society, our, our understanding of the English helper, uh, we envision that men, we envision that the wife is simply the help. After all, we have the phrase that we use quite often to refer to our spouse within Christian circles as that of a helpmeet. And we get it from the English translation of the Hebrew Bible. But a couple points I want to make. One is that whenever God brought the animals to Adam, and that's the first thing that God did, uh, whenever he realized that it is not good that man is alone, first he brought, the Adam, he brought all the living things to Adam to see what he would name them. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, in the ancient Near East, the name assigned to something was more than perhaps you and I understand a name to be today. It was more meaningful. It described the role that that creature played in the context of creation. And so what we see is that when Adam named every living thing, ultimately he was acknowledging the role they played in the context of God's creation. And then at the end of that naming ceremony, ultimately uh, there is no help, there's no fit, there's no helper fit for him that was found. And so God responds. He causes a deep sleep to fall upon him, and he takes out of him a one who is fit or a helper. The Hebrew word that is here translated fit is the word that literally means in Hebrew, in front of or parallel to. In order to really appreciate this meaning, the phrase, you need to picture two puzzle pieces. And the one piece is lacking in the exact proportion to that which the other supplies, so that when put together, they make a perfect fit. That is the connotation of the Hebrew phrase for helper or helpmeet. So neither women or men were placed on this earth simply to be the help. 
Women and men were created so that when their unique characteristics are combined, a clear image of God is present in the created order. So the patriarchal view, which says that men are somehow superior to women and that they dominate women as if they are just simply a part of creation, is unbiblical because ultimately women and men, men and women, are two pieces of a puzzle that when put together portray the image of the divine creator in a, in a much greater extent than possible when alone. However, to argue as the feminists do that women and men are the same puzzle piece and thus make the same contribution to the created order is to hinder the complete portrayal of the divine image. So is it important that we understand that there are divinely ordained roles in gender? Yes. So that being said, what is man's role? Well, in Genesis 2:24, we see a glimpse of it when God says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The fact that it is the man's responsibility to leave implies the origin of leadership responsibility. Man leaves and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. However, to see this illustrated in more graphic detail, we must look at 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 7 which says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. There are five comments that I want to make about that one verse. Five characteristics about biblical masculinity, biblical manhood, that we can um, extrapolate from that verse. One, that husbands are to make it our mission to understand our wife's needs. That's what Peter says. We are to make it our mission to understand the needs of our wife. Secondly, that husbands are to show honor to their wife. This means to serve and to cherish and to protect. Thirdly, that husbands honor their wife as the weaker vessel. Now, please hear me. Men, whether you can bench press your wife or she can bench press you is not what Peter is talking about here. Physical strength, though generally existing to a potentially higher degree within the masculine population at large is not a true indicator of manhood. What is being addressed is not physical strength, but the posture a man takes towards his wife. Men are to honor their wives by protecting them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. When Adam and Eve were created and placed in the Garden of Eden, they were both named man and they were given the mission, twofold mission, one of being fruitful, multiply, replenishing the earth, and two of dressing the garden and keeping it. We see in both of those missional objectives, the masculine and the feminine characteristic of man. Men, our responsibility is to protect our wives. Our responsibility is to seek to understand them. Now, Women, we're going to get to you in just a minute. But men, how much 
conflict could be avoided in our marital relationships if we considered it as part of our divine mandate to seek to understand our wife. Now I can automatically hear some of you thinking, I'll, I'll never do that. It's impossible. But we are to seek to understand. We are to live with our wife in an understanding way. We are to nurture. We are to protect. We are to serve our wife. And Paul will go on to say in Ephesians chapter 5, even as Christ serves his church. Okay. The fourth characteristic that we see here in this passage, 1 Peter 3, verse 7, husbands and wives are co-heirs of the grace of life. Ultimately, both of you together are a co-heir of this grace of life. This shared inheritance before God becomes the contextual reminder for honoring your wife. Because ultimately, as we see in Ephesians 5, men, we have the responsibility of presenting her in a similar fashion, again, Christ is, Paul is referring to Christ and his church, but he's using marriage as an analogy to do so, of presenting her to God. And then five, when men neglect to honor their wives, and hear this, men, when we neglect to honor our wives, our prayers are hindered. You may say, that doesn't make sense. Why would Peter say that? Wayne Grudem, in his commentary on this passage, makes this comment, and I cannot say it better, so I'll quote him. He says, So concerned is God that Christian husbands live in an understanding and loving way with their wives that he interprets, I'm sorry, he interrupts his relationship with them when they are not doing so. No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing honor on her. To take the time to develop and maintain a good marriage is God's will. It is serving God. It is a spiritual activity pleasing in his sight." End of quote. So ultimately, men, we see as part of our masculine responsibility to understand our wife's needs, to show honor to our wife, to respond to our wife in a way that we, um, uh, that we act towards her, we honor her, we protect her physically, emotionally, and spiritually. We consider that we have a shared inheritance before God, and we do not neglect to honor her, not only knowing that it has a relational impact in our home, but also a spiritual impact in our relationship with God. So, let me just summarize and say that from the verse here in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7 the heart of biblical masculinity is this we are called to lead protect honor serve and understand those five things so what does that look like in a home well let me just make this very clear god has called us in a context uh, where um, there's a great degree of discretion on how these specific characteristics are lived out in every home. Because one thing I want to acknowledge is that not only are we all part of, of uh, the Southern culture in Hickson, the American culture in which we live, but, we, but there's also an array of cultures in which some cultures are metrilineal. Now, I'm not going to take time to define what all that means, but essentially this, that 
the requirements, the biblical definition of masculinity and, and what, as we're going to see in a minute, femininity, manhood and womanhood, are broad enough to allow application in very diverse ways. So how, this, how these characteristics are applied in your home may look different than how they're applied in mine. But let me just give this rule of thumb. Any action men that would give you an out in leading your family spiritually, physically, emotionally should be avoided. And let me bring it home a little bit further to say, ask yourself the question, every time you start to do something, even if it's quote unquote free time, is this honoring my wife? Is it serving her? Is it protecting her? Is it seeking to understand her? And I'll go a step further and say that we live in a culture where more often than not, I talk to women whose husbands have vacated the home, not because they're not there physically, but because when they're there physically, oftentimes their attention is directed to a game. Their attention is directed to sports. Their attention is directed to something that is occupying their time and costing them a relationship. Now I say that there's nothing wrong with playing games. There's nothing wrong with watching sports. But men, if we prioritized our time in such a way that we saw our responsibility, our divine mandate as honoring, serving, protecting, getting to understand our wives, then I imagine that we would probably spend our time in much different ways. All right. Now, women, let's talk a little bit about you. So we've talked about what biblical manhood is. Now, what is the role of women? Well, again, let's turn to 1 Peter for help. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So there are three things that I'd like to comment on in regard to these five verses. One, women are to acknowledge and support the leadership of their own husband. Now, I'm going to talk about in a moment how we apply this if we're not married. Obviously, this is a sermon series on marriage, but both biblical manhood and biblical womanhood is something that exists outside of marriage as well. Now, there are specific requirements, specific responsibilities as it relates to the marriage, but there are characteristics that define biblical manhood and biblical womanhood for people who are single as well. But first, let's look at three things in the context of these five verses that describe biblical womanhood. First, women are to acknowledge and support the leadership of their husbands. Peter says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Doesn't mean you have to be subject to other people's husbands. It means be subject to your own husbands. This does not mean, women, that you are subservient to men. But it does mean that the man is called of God to lead. Now, I understand that in many cases, 
men fail to lead in the home. And there are times, there are times when women out of necessity take on the mantle of leadership. Again, I am not painting the picture as every exceptional case permits or allows. I'm painting the picture as God in his word has defined the roles of gender both within the marriage as well as without. So that being said, leadership styles may vary, but at the end of the day, God has entrusted the man with the well-being of his household spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Now, man, if you hear me say that you are to be the leader and you automatically think of a, of a benevolent despot or a benevolent tyrant, you have the wrong anti-biblical understanding of leadership. Biblical leadership is servant leadership, which means that as a man, you are willing to lay down your life physically, spiritually, and temporally, give of your time, for the sake of your wife. And women, in return, are to acknowledge and support the leadership of their husbands. Secondly, that women are to nurture with virtue and deed. Peter says, if some husbands do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Let me say that women are not, and please hear me, women are not second-class citizens in the kingdom. But they do play, not a subservient, and I understand you may have to look these two words up, but not a subservient role, but they do play a subordinate role in the home. And oftentimes we mistake subordinate for inferior. And when we do, two things happen. Number one, we violate the biblical definition of womanhood. And two, we deface the image of God that is portrayed beautifully in man and woman when they come together. So women are to nurture with virtue and deed. And thirdly, women are to demonstrate the beauty of maternal love through the adorning of the hidden person of their heart. Now women, this does not mean that you can't be concerned with your appearance. I think sometimes people read it and they misunderstand. They make doctrines out of things that should not become doctrines. But ultimately what Peter is saying is that what matters is not the adorning exterior of your external appearance, but rather the adorning of the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now again, this is not limited to wives. Otherwise, it would not be a reasonable standard for biblical womanhood. Rather, it pertains to the very essence of the feminine gender. We see this essence in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20. We often forget this. But prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were both known as man. They were both known as Adam, or from the earth. It wasn't until after the fall that Adam named Eve Chava, or Eve, which means in Hebrew, the mother of all living. So there are characteristics that are intrinsic to biblical womanhood that pertain to nurturing and life-sustaining support. And you can fulfill those characteristics whether you are married or whether you're not. And we'll talk a bit about that here in just a moment. So, and I'm running out of time, but in essence, let me summarize by saying in the broadest means possible, 
that the biblical definition between gender roles in marriage looks something like this. Manhood is characterized by a desire to serve and honor one's wife as well as protect one's wife and family. Men are called to lead spiritually, physically, and emotionally and provide for the needs of their household. In fact, 1 Timothy 5.8 says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, let me simply add that that does not mean that men have to be the primary breadwinner. I know several marriages where the women make more than the men. So what he's talking about there is not who's the primary breadwinner. What he's talking about there is that men, if you neglect, that the neglect of the family, that a family that is ultimately in need, the responsibility boils down to the man. And to reject the family, to neglect the family, to fail to provide for his own household is equivalent to denying the faith. So if the man is unmarried, what then? We've talked a lot about biblical manhood in the context of marriage, biblical womanhood in the context of marriage. If the man is unmarried, the virtue of protecting the vulnerable and honoring sisters and mothers in the Lord, as well as leading younger men with a godly example, still defines biblical manhood. Now, womanhood, again to summarize, is defined as caring for and nurturing others as well as adorning one's inner self with spiritual gentleness, godliness, and life-giving care. If married, this naturally pertains to the husband and children, if children are involved. But if single, this can be expressed by caring and nurturing for those whom God has placed in, the sphere of inf in your sphere of influence. So to simplify things a bit, let me just say this. A man leads, a woman follows. Man protects, woman nurtures. Man seeks to serve, woman seeks to sustain life. All because together we are joint heirs of the grace of life. Now, how you apply that in the context of your home will vary, and I'll iterate that and reiterate it. What it looks like in your marriage may be different from what it looks like in mine, but I think that we ought to be aware of, again, that 30,000-foot parameter of biblical manhood and womanhood. Acknowledge that there is a difference, a God-ordained difference between the genders. And encourage, if we have children, what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a girl, what it means to be a woman. Why? Well, to go back to the first point, because it's only when men are fulfilling their God-ordained role and women are fulfilling their God-ordained role that the two pieces of the puzzle snap together and we see the clearest image of the character of the triune God in creation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is a revelation to us, even when its truths make us uncomfortable. We thank you that your word is forever established in heaven. And we ask, O oh God, for grace, even as we continue this series on marriage matters, 
We ask for grace to submit to you and to submit to your word so that we might become the men and the women that you've called us to be. Father, I thank you for these differences. For with that diversity, you unify us and through a unified marriage and unified relationships, male and female, that ultimately you portray in the home and the marriage, the relationship between Christ and his church, and in all the world, the true image of God. And so, Father, we ask, O oh God, that as we submit to Christ, the image of God, and as we submit to your word, that you would continue to make us the men and women that you've called us to be. For we pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.